Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's on page 932 in your pew Bible. Love that musical prayer we just sang because it reminds us that the written word points us to the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, who was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father, begins his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we listen to God's Word, as we look into the truth that God sets forth in His Word, in His Word, we see the glory of God's Son. And that's why it's so important that we, by the Spirit's help, and with our cooperation, we block out any known distractions. Whether it be, you know, a smartphone or something else in our possession, something happening later on in the day or in the week, and that we concentrate with all our mental faculties with the Spirit's help on the all-sufficient Word of God. As we listen to God's Word, we see the glory of God's Son. So with that in mind, please do open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. Again, it's on page 932. We took a break from this epistle last week to celebrate Thanksgiving by focusing our minds and thoughts on Psalm 100. Now we return to 1 Timothy. We begin chapter 3. Chapter 2 ends with instructions to men and women regarding how they're to behave in the church. Uh, This is no minor issue because how we behave impacts our witness to the world. Our behavior in church impacts our witness to the world. Uh, Paul tells the men, I want you to pray. I don't want you to leave it to the women to do all the praying. I want you to pray. And that's not Paul's preference. He is speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as one sent from God for the good of the church. I want the men to pray. And I want them to pray to the Lord without fighting with one another. He says, I want you to lift holy hands to the Lord without anger or quarreling. Then he says, I want the women to dress appropriately. I want you to dress in such a way so that people are uh, not distracted from their worship of God by looking at you. Uh, Paul says, you want to be beautiful? You want to be attractive? Do good deeds because that's what makes a woman beautiful in God's sight and in the sight of God's people. And one of the ways you make yourself attractive by doing good deeds is to respect the men that God has placed in authority over his church under the lordship of Christ. And that's where chapter 2 ends. And so it begs the question, well, what men are qualified to lead the church? And Paul's answer to that question is the subject of the first paragraph in chapter 3. Follow along in 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, 
self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that Paul points out in this passage is that overseeing the church is an excellent work. Uh, Paul begins this uh, declaration with the introductory clause, this is a trustworthy saying. This is one of five trustworthy sayings that, that Paul lists in his epistles to Timothy and to Titus. We came across the first one in chapter 1, verse 15. Do you remember what it was? This is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul introduces that statement in chapter 1, verse 15 as a trustworthy statement indicating that it should be readily received and repeated. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a glorious truth. And so Paul is emphasizing that for everybody's encouragement. And before we move on to this second trustworthy saying at the outset of chapter 3, I want to ask every person here, have you received the first trustworthy saying that Paul set forth? Have you received Christ as your Savior? Do you believe that He came into this world to save sinners? Have you received, have you believed that message for yourself? And because it is a trustworthy saying, are you repeating that message to others? Are you proclaiming the good news to them? Well, chapter 3 begins with another trustworthy saying. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's why we had an elder named Noble come do the pastoral <laughs> prayer today. The office of overseer is one word in the Greek, episcope, epi, meaning over, and scope, from which we get our English word scope, which means to look intently. So it's to, to look intently, to carefully watch over something or someone. Uh, we could translate the word simply overseership, if we were to keep it one word in English. All three terms, uh, pastor, elder, elder, uh, uh, yeah, pastor, elder, overseer, um, these are all interchangeable throughout the New Testament. Um, in 1 Peter 5, we see all three of these terms used. Uh, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd or pastor the flock of God which is among you, exercising oversight. In Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he exhorted them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Acts 20, 28. 
You want to know how precious the church, how precious God's people are to him? Consider that Jesus Christ purchased the church with his own blood. And that's what makes the work of overseer a noble task. The Greek word for noble, kalos, means excellent, worthwhile. It can even be translated beautiful. It is an excellent work. It is a worthwhile task to shepherd God's people. It is a beautiful work that God calls overseers to do. Remember that Paul is writing to Timothy. And Timothy is facing some very difficult challenges as a pastor there in Ephesus. But Paul is reminding Timothy. And through Timothy, he is reminding all the church that his labors as a pastor, as an overseer, as a shepherd in the Lord's church is worthwhile. If Jesus Christ shed his blood and gave his very life for the church, then Timothy, it is worth any sacrifice that you have to make as pastor. It is a beautiful work. It is an excellent work. It is a worthwhile work, Timothy, that you are giving yourself to. And not just Timothy, but anyone who would aspire to the office of overseer. That word aspire, it means to reach out, to stretch toward. Something I didn't realize till this week is that in the Greek, it always appears in the middle voice. We don't have that in English. We have active voice, you know, hit the ball, or passive voice, the ball was hit. But middle voice in the Greek means that the person doing the action is doing it on himself. In other words, he is stretching himself out in order to attain something. He is reaching forward with everything he's got to attain something. That's the word that is used here. If anyone stretches himself out, he aspires. He's, he's reaching out to become a pastor, an overseer, a shepherd of God's people. It is a good, it is an excellent, it is a beautiful work that he is doing. Jesus said, I will build my church. And here in 1 Timothy 3.1, we discover that Jesus uses the ambitions, yes, the ambitions of godly men to make that happen. In his book, Rescuing Ambition, Dave Harvey writes, quote, As God moves to the center of our dreams, our desires conform to his glory. God then grants desires because he knows they will magnify his name, not ours. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. End quote. Elsewhere we read in Scripture in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider other people as more important than yourself. Don't do anything out of your own personal interest, but do it for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he goes on to say how Jesus condescended himself and took on a human form and became even a servant to all, and he died for all. He became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. That is the attitude, that is the approach, that is the mindset that Jesus wants his under-shepherds to have. And Jesus uses the godly ambition of those kind of men to build his church. 
That's important to remember because some men want to lead for the sake of power, prestige, for the sake of a title, uh, to be esteemed by others, or for some other selfish motive. And Scripture makes it clear that that kind of ambition, selfish ambition, sinful ambition, divides and destroys the church because as it goes with the leader, so it goes with the people. God said, if anyone destroys my temple, I will destroy him. Because Jesus Christ laid his life down for the church. Jesus Christ is determined to build his church. So if any uh, prideful, power-seeking, power-grabbing man seeks to lead the church, God's not going to tolerate that. God will bring him down. Because he cares for his church. But God delights to use godly ambition. Ambition is not a bad thing. It's only bad when it's selfish ambition. If you have godly ambition, that is a good thing. Because God uses godly ambitions that exalt him and encourage us. Ambitions that excite us, that get us pumped about doing the work of God to build His church, to be co-laborers with God in this great work. And it's my hope and my prayer today that some young men sitting in this sanctuary right now today would aspire to be an overseer in the church of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a full-time pastor or you're, or you're a non-compensated elder who has um, a job outside of the church, So whether it's volunteer, whether it's um, a paid position, my hope and prayer is that there will be young men arising from this fellowship to say, yeah, I want to do that. I don't know if this venture of mine, this venture of mine, or this job, or this goal, or whatever will come to fruition, but one thing I know, that Jesus Christ will build His church. He will not fail in that mission, and I want to get on board with God with what He is doing in that respect. I, I want to stretch myself. It's not easy. I will reach out. I will do what it takes with God's blessing. If he would desire me, I certainly desire to be in that position of influence. I've been pastoring for over 32 years. But I want you to know that for many, many years before I pastored, I was pastored. I was pastored. The first pastor I remember was the pastor I had when I was four years old. By age six, I sensed in my own heart that God wanted me to be a missionary or a pastor. The pastor that I had when I was 12 years old was the one who encouraged me and helped me to preach my very first sermon as part of a youth ministry event when I was growing up in Illinois. And God used that experience of preparing the sermon and preaching the sermon with the help of my pastor to, to convince me, at least at that stage of my life, God, I want to do this the rest of my life. I had parents that taught me love and respect for their pastors. We live in a day where everybody questions authority, and many times for good reason. That's why leaders must be credible. But I had parents that taught me love and respect for the pastor and said, if you ever want to be a pastor, they never put that on me, but said, if you want to be, that would be a great work, son, for you to do. 
That would be something that mom and I would be so proud of you if you wanted to go that direction. And so I never looked back, and, and it was my joy to become a pastor. I had a high view of the pastorate even when I was a little boy. But as I matured and as I began to continue studying the scriptures for myself, I realized that, you know, this high view of the pastorate, seeing it as, a, as an excellent work, as a noble task, isn't just something that, well, that's my parents' perspective or, or that's my mom and dad's opinion. This is how God sees the work. Paul is speaking as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he said, look, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, to this overseership, it is a noble task, it is an excellent work, it is a beautiful thing that he desires to do. But that's why it's so important that this kind of a pursuit be driven by godly motives. Otherwise, it is a train wreck waiting to happen for the man and for the church. Because overseeing the church is excellent work, it requires men of excellent character. And that's why Paul says in verse 2, therefore, because this is a noble work, therefore an elder must be above reproach. A noble task requires men of noble character. Their motives must be pure. Their character must not be in question. And that's why the New Testament spends more ink on the qualifications of a pastor than the job description itself because the qualifications are the job description. We lead by example. And therefore, overseers must be men of excellent character. In verses 2 to 7, Paul lists 15 qualifications for men who aspire to the office of overseer. I refer to these as elder essentials because they are non-negotiable. Therefore, an elder must be above reproach. This is the overarching qualification. It actually encompasses all the 14 qualifications that follow. So in one sense, we could say there's one qualification for a pastor elder. He must be above reproach. He must be blameless in terms of his observable conduct. Uh, only God knows his heart. But as best as we can witness this man's life, his ministry, his leadership, he needs to be above reproach. He needs to be blameless. He needs uh, not to have any pattern, any kind of a glaring deficiency in his character that other people notice. On a, uh, from a practical standpoint, if you were to post this man's name publicly and invite comments. There ought to be no legitimate accusation regarding his character that someone can raise against him. Uh, not that he's sinless, because then nobody would qualify but Jesus. But it means that, you know, if he breaks one of these at any one time, the first response ought to be, that is uncharacteristic of this man. Or it may even be disbelief. So-and-so wouldn't do that because it would be so out of line with what you know about his character. That's the idea. He must be blameless. He must be above reproach. He must not have any obvious deficiency in his morality. Well, what's the first qualification listed after this overarching qualification? 
He must be the husband of one wife. Look again at the text, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. In both of Paul's qualifications list for elders, the one here in 1 Timothy 3 and the one in Titus 1 that Noble read earlier, this qualification, the husband of one wife, immediately follows the overarching qualification, he must be above reproach. And that is because marriage and sexuality must be the first and foremost important qualification for an elder in which he must be above reproach. Husband of one wife is three words in the Greek that can literally be translated one woman man. If an elder is to be blameless, if he's to be above reproach, he must be a one woman man. So the emphasis is not on his marital status per se, like a single guy can't be an elder. The idea is, if he is a married man, there is one woman that he is devoted to without question, and that is his wife. 20 years ago, I read a book by C.J. Mahaney titled, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, What Every Christian Husband Needs to Know. And I probably haven't looked at that book, but maybe once or twice in the last 20 years. So I'm telling you, I read that two decades ago, and to this day, I still remember the dedication that he wrote to his wife. I I couldn't remember it word for word, but I remembered the gist of it because it made such an impression on me at the time. Here's what he wrote to his wife, Carolyn, on the dedication page. To Carolyn, with all my love, when I see you in a crowd, you're the only one who appears in color. The rest of the world is black and white to me. I thought, what a great line. (laughs) It's like, why can't I think of stuff like that? He probably got good attention from his wife that night, is my guess. We know from Ephesians 5 and other passages that the marriage relationship is the highest of all human relationships because it is meant to reflect Christ's love for his bride, the church. I want to read you a quote from Dustin Benge's book, The The Loveliest Place, because he provides from nature itself a beautiful analogy of Christ's love for the church. Listen to what he says. And I might have read this before. Bear with me if I have. It's worth repeating. Doves mate for life and are often represented at weddings because they symbolize a lifetime of love. The bond is so strong that it can extend for a time beyond death as they watch over their mates trying to care for them and returning again and again to the place of their death. The ever-watchful dove looks only to its mate and has eyes for no other. Christ has eyes only for his church. Believers saved by grace through faith are espoused exclusively to him. His righteousness, pardon, forgiveness, love, care, provision, eternal life, these are only for her. His singular eye is upon her at all times. There is never a time when Christ doesn't love her. There's never a time when he doesn't extend his whole heart to her. There's never a time when his heart is not captivated by her. It's one of the most touching words I've read about how much we mean to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is true of Jesus Christ 
ought to be true of every married Christian man, and what ought to be true of every Christian man must be true of an elder, because we lead by example. This means that a pastor, an elder, an overseer is not a womanizer. He's certainly not an adulterer. He is not a flirt. He's not known as a ladies' man. He is a one-woman man who is fully devoted to his wife. The next three character qualities listed in verse 2 are closely related and could be grouped under one heading that we could call self-mastery. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. An overseer is to be sober-minded, which means he's clear-headed. He exercises sound judgment. He avoids any debilitating excesses that would cloud his thinking. He's self-controlled, which means he's able to curb his passions and his impulses, especially in tense situations. Others in tense situations may lose their cool, but this guy always keeps his head. He shows great discretion in handling people and their problems. And therefore, he is respectable. He behaves appropriately and conducts himself in a well-ordered manner. That's what meant by the Greek word. He's a a well-ordered man. People are not inclined to follow somebody they don't respect. That's why an elder must be characterized by good behavior and have a well-ordered life because people see him as a respectable man who's worth following. The next qualification, he is to be hospitable. Hospitable. One of the most fundamental, concrete expressions of Christian love is hospitality. The Greek term is philoxenos, which literally means love of strangers, foreigners, or guests. A great example of this in the Old Testament, a man who was an exemplary elder in that regard, was Job, whom God himself described as a blameless and upright man. This is what God said about Job. He is a blameless and upright man. And Job modeled this concept of hospitality beautifully. He was able to testify, no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. And this kind of quality ought to characterize every Christian, not just overseers. In Romans 12, 13, Paul says, Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Don't just be grudgingly willing to do it. Actually pursue hospitality. The New Living Translation of this same verse uh, conveys the fuller sense of what Paul is saying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, he writes to all believers, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Again, the New Living Translation explicates the command saying, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Brothers and sisters, does that characterize you? Are you eager to have people into your home, especially those who could use a meal, need a room? Alexander Strout, uh, in probably the most comprehensive book on biblical eldership I've ever read, it's actually called Biblical Eldership, writes this. 
And he also wrote a book on hospitality, by the way. So I think he excels in this area uh, as in other areas. Alexander Strauch wrote, and I quote, For an elder to be inhospitable is a poor example of Christian love and care for others. The shepherd elder is to give himself lovingly and sacrificially for the care of the flock. This cannot be done from a distance with a smile and a handshake on Sunday morning or through a superficial visit. Giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and one's home with them. An open home is a sign of an open heart and of a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. End quote. Strong words, but true. I know, Ruthie, in our, in, in our case, we have found that some of the best, most meaningful conversations we have had with people haven't been here. It's been in our home. We've had great conversations with people here, but there's something about the intimate setting of a living room or kitchen or dining room where you can just enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with each other. I know that my fellow elders feel the same way, and as I was thinking even this week of our own elders and how they constantly open up their home to others, it just encouraged my heart. We must never underestimate the power of hospitality in meeting people's needs. And remember, the idea is not to impress people when they come over, it's to bless people when they come over. You don't need to go through this incredible ritual of cleaning up your house from top to bottom or putting on a fancy meal or bringing out the best china, even if you have china. Most of us probably don't. But that idea, the idea is, no, I'm simply opening my home to them to show that I'm opening my heart to them. That's the idea. Hebrews 13.2 says, Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Boy, if you need some incentive, there you have it. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. We see this with Abraham and Lot in the Old Testament. And hey, it could happen to you. Next, an elder overseer must be able to teach. This qualification, like the one before it, hospitality, emphasizes what an elder does. So most of the other ones emphasize what he is. This emphasizes what he does. He must be able to teach. One of the reasons I had Brother Noble read from Titus 1, the other list of qualifications in Paul's pastoral letter to Titus, was because it expands a little bit on what Paul says to Timothy here. Here it just says he's able to teach. Titus 1.9 says he must hold firmly or he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That is to say, an elder must know God's word extensively and be able to teach it effectively to the profit of God's people. That's the idea. And it doesn't always have to be done from the pulpit. Uh, not every man is a public speaker in that sense. Uh, but God's word is communicated. The church is built up and instructed through other venues like Sunday school classes, what we call truth tracks classes, um, home study groups, um, in uh, biblical counseling sessions, and even in personal conversations. There can be very rich instruction and at times admonition, encouragement, rebuke from God's word in many settings. But this man must know God's word extensively and be able to communicate it effectively. That's the idea. 
not a drunkard. That's the next qualification. An elder must be above reproach in his use of alcohol. Now, the Bible does not command abstinence. Though some Christians may choose that path for themselves simply to to be safe. And that's fine. That's great. That's commendable. But the Bible does command against drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18 says very explicitly, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Scripture makes it clear, both in the Old and New Testament, very replete throughout Scripture, that drunkenness is sin. And that persistently drunk people who claim to be Christians or members of a church are to go through church discipline if they do not repent of the sin of drunkenness. Drunkenness wrecks home and it ruins lives. I don't need to cite statistics to you. I don't need to try to convince you that that's the case because many of you have experienced the fallout from the drunken influence of someone else. Drunkenness wrecks homes. It ruins lives. And a person that has a drinking problem simply is not fit at all for spiritual leadership in the church. And that kind of leads to the next quality, not violent. I think it's no coincidence that this quality follows the one preceding it. According to the National Council on Alcohol and Drug Dependence, alcohol plays a role in 40% of all violent crimes in the United States. Because drunkenness often leads to violence. Paul lists this quality as well, because you don't have to be drunk to be violent, but a lot of times drunk people are violent. The word violent in this verse literally means a striker, someone who punches with the fist, or a brawler. It suggests a violent person who is prone to such a temper that he gives himself to physical assault on others. The New American Standard Version uses the word pugnacious. And one commentator says succinctly, a pugnacious man is a fighter, a bad-tempered, irritable, out-of-control individual. End quote. Not are we not only to follow, not to follow such a man. Proverbs 22, verse 24 says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with with someone who is so easily angered. Or else you're going to become like him. You'll find yourself getting worked up really quickly over things because he's a bad influence on you. Violent men, drunkards, have absolutely no business leading Christ's church. Or anybody else for that matter. Now a positive quality. Gentle. You know, that's the very word that Jesus uses to describe his own heart. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sometimes I think in our poisoned culture, 
where secular thought has been allowed to override scriptural outlooks. Some men, though they might not say it, might say, well, that kind of makes Jesus sound like a sissy. Kind of like long, silky hair. I'm just gentle and just kind of prissy. I don't mean to be sacrilegious. I'm saying that's how some men, though they would never say that, when they think of that word gentle, they kind of, the image they have in their mind is not a positive one. They would say it's not a masculine uh, image that comes to mind. Isn't that more of a feminine quality? Well, the Greek word for gentle, which is sometimes translated meek, praus, praus, conveys the idea actually of power, great power under control. And this makes sense that an elder is supposed to be self-controlled, right? We already looked at that trait. Let me give you some examples of how it's used in ancient history, this word praus. The Greek military leader named Xenophon used this word to describe war horses that were well-trained, strong and spirited, yet highly disciplined. Socrates used this word to describe a person who could argue his, uh, his case forcibly, but without being given to anger. Plato used this word to describe a victorious general who was merciful to a conquered people. And Aristotle used this word to refer to someone concerned about justice, but whose anger did not degrade him into revenge or retaliation. So gentleness or meekness is by no means weakness. It is power under control. When writing to the church at Corinth, a church that had a lot of issues and grieved Paul greatly, mistreated him at times, constantly embroiled in conflict, Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 10.1, Now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, one of the best books I've read in recent years, and recommend it highly. Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, Dane Ortland writes, and I quote, Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. End quote. Men, does that sort of posture, does that sort of disposition describe you? Of course, we could ask it to the ladies as well. That's how Jesus describes his own heart. It's the only time he does in Scripture. The only time Jesus describes his own heart, he says it's gentle, it's lowly. And that's the way Jesus wants the hearts of those overseeing his church to be gentle. Not quarrelsome. Titus 3.2, again, written to all believers, says, Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. So what is supposed to be true for every Christian absolutely must be true of an overseer because elders lead by Example, he's not a troublemaker, he's a peacemaker. He brings calm to the situation. Next quality, he's not a lover of money. Now Paul's going to expound more on this in chapter 6, so I'm not going to go into detail at all here. But I'll simply mention a couple of verses from chapter 6. 
as a preview. In chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. In verse 9, Paul says, Those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And for this reason, Scripture tells all believers in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money. Why? Be content with what you have. Why? For he, Jesus himself, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So it's like the attitude is, if I have Christ, I have everything. If I have Jesus, I have everything. And elders are to model this kind of contentment, showing others, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. Next quality. We're almost done, just a couple more. He must manage his own household well. He must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive. The Greek word for manage has two primary meanings. It's kind of a double-edged thing. One is governance. The other one has a more tender side. It's caring. So it's governing while caring. And an elder is to exhibit both qualities with respect to his family before he should ever lead the family of God. And one way that he demonstrates this quality of managing his own household well is keeping his children submissive. But no, notice how he's to do that, with all dignity. This phrase, with all dignity, isn't talking about the children. They should behave with all dignity, but this qualification is to the elder. He is to keep them submissive with all dignity. He is to remain dignified even when instructing and disciplining his children. That is to say, he is not to keep them submissive by manipulating them, threatening them, certainly not by abusing them verbally or physically, emotionally, psychologically, but he is to do it with all dignity, showing his own children respect as fellow image bearers of God. A father who treats his children with respect, probably 99 out of 100 times, will earn their respect. But a man with a temper, who's always volatile, who shows inconsistent discipline in the home, the kids are always nervous, wondering what daddy's going to be like tonight when he walks into the house. That kind of man exasperates his children. He discourages his children, and he actually exacerbates their rebellion. But a man whose children respect him, in most cases, must be a pretty good father. And that's exactly what Jesus wants for his church. That's Paul's point here, because in verse 5 he says, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This brought to my mind what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Again, people that grieved him greatly, a lot of problems in the church. 1 Corinthians 4.15, Paul wrote to them, 
You may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This was a great reminder to me that a man may be able to teach, but the church needs more than a Bible lecturer. The church needs men with a fatherly care for the congregation. A church needs men who love God's family like a father. In his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 12, As you know, as you know, so the people were able to testify this about him. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. That's a good father that has that kind of influence on his children. Good fathers are among the best elders and pastors. Another qualification, almost near the end, not a recent convert. Which is to say an elder can't be a new Christian. Uh, He can't be a baby believer. It's okay to be a baby believer. It's okay to be a new Christian. We all start somewhere. That's a glorious place. You're just not in a position of maturity yet to lead God's people. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Uh, The scripture warns us repeatedly in both the Old and New Testament about the dangers of pride. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Remember King Uzziah in the Old Testament? 2 Chronicles 26 says, his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped by God and God used other people to help him. His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he became strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For then he became unfaithful to the Lord. Same was true of Hezekiah, who, like King Uzziah, had been a good king. But Hezekiah got sick to the point of death, and he wept, and he prayed before God, asking for more time. God mercifully granted his request, but then we read in 2 Chronicles 32, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart became proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. You know why? Because the people became proud. As it goes with the leader, so it goes with the people. If godly, well-seasoned leaders like Hezekiah, Uzziah, Others are prone to pride. How much more so would be new, untested believers? Biblical history and church history shows that pride has destroyed some of the greatest of men. Pride led to the devil's downfall, Lucifer. And he does everything he can to drag men down with him. So appointing a new believer, an immature believer to elder leadership makes him susceptible to pride. You're kind of setting him up for a fall. And by that, it incurs God's displeasure to both the man and to the church. And that's why an elder must not be a new convert. Next quality, last quality. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Again, the devil's laying a trap for him. 
And sometimes it's a man's reputation that gets him into trouble, not in the church, but outside the church. It's interesting, too, in verse 7, when that phrase that he must be well thought of, literally in the Greek it means beautiful witness. Beautiful witness. He must have a beautiful witness to non-Christians around him. This made me think of, of something that some of you may know, many of you may not. Uh, many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon, uh, the 19th century British preacher who, who pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and just had thousands of members. In fact, over his decades of ministry in the 1800s, he had 14,000 people that were wanting to become members over that period of time. But Spurgeon was very careful not to add people too quickly to the membership role just because they professed faith in Christ. He and his fellow pastors at the Metropolitan Tabernacle patiently shepherded them through a five-point process. The first process was a membership applicant would meet with one of the elders of the church, and they would share with them their testimony, how they came to faith in Christ. They would explain what their understanding of the gospel be. They would explain the difference that Jesus Christ had made in their life. And if, uh, if any clarity regarding the gospel was needed, the elder would go over that with them. And, and if they, they went through that interview and it went well, they were allowed to go to step two. Step two was they met with Charles Spurgeon himself as the lead pastor. So they'd already met with an elder, but now met with Spurgeon. Say, wait, with how busy Charles Spurgeon was, a church of thousands, he met with every single membership applicant? Yeah, for the most part, unless he was sick or whatever, he met with every single membership applicant. And Spurgeon questioned them, had a conversation with them, not because he didn't trust his fellow pastors or elders, but he, his purpose was twofold. Number one, he wanted to make sure that nothing got missed, so just kind of a backup to make sure they were well vetted in that sense. And secondly, with the assumption at this point that there's a good chance they may become a member, having already, having already made it through the first interview, he wanted to already to begin shepherding their heart, get to know them as their pastors, the one who would be in the pulpit every Sunday, make that personal connection with them. And if that went really well, met with an elder, then they met with Spurgeon, that went really well, then it came to phase three. Phase three was there would be a meeting of the church members, those that were already members of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they would have a membership meeting. And the elder who interviewed them, the candidate initially, would verbally share with the members the candidate's testimony. The candidate wasn't there. The elder would share their testimony. And then would express his affirmation that everything seemed to go well. Spurgeon would give the thumbs up that things went well in, in his meeting with them. And then the elder would recommend one of the members to be what was called a visitor or a messenger, and this was their job. That messenger or visitor on behalf of the church would go to the workplace of the member applicant. They would go into their neighborhood. They would go to his family members in the home, and they would ask questions like this. Obviously, the home the answer would be obvious. They'd go into the workplace. Do you know this applicant? Do you know that he is a Christian? What do you know about his character? What is he like at work? How does he treat his family? Now in our day, we may not appoint messengers to take on such inquiries. By the way, steps four and five is if everything came back good, 
Then in step four, the membership applicant would go to the next member's meeting and he or she would then share their testimony with the congregation. And once they approved them for membership, then they were baptized as a public profession of their faith in Christ and would receive the ordinance of communion being joined to the church. Like I said, in our day, for all sorts of reasons, we may not appoint messengers to make such inquiries, but would you agree there is wisdom in helping membership applicants to see that joining the church is never a private affair? And if joining the church isn't a private affair, then certainly leading the church is not a private affair. Again, Alexander Strout notes, quote, an outsider's opinion of a Christian leader's character cannot be dismissed, for it affects the evangelistic witness of the entire church. End quote. Oh, you're the pastor, you're the elder of that church? Well, if, if you're any reflection of them, no thanks. I remember years ago as a Bible college student preparing for pastoral ministry, a well-seasoned pastor named Sumner Wemp, who ended up becoming the vice president of spiritual affairs at Liberty University when, when Jerry Falwell was there, when it was still called, I think, Liberty Baptist Bible College or whatever. He came and he spoke to us, and in his book, Practical Pastoring, and in person, he said this to our pastoral theology class, something I never forgot. He said, if the gospel is an offense, praise God. But if I'm an offense, that's sin. If the gospel is an offense, then praise God. But if I'm an offense, that's sin. I find it interesting that in these last two verses, in verses 6 and 7 of these qualifications, Paul warns us twice about the devil. Did you catch that? 1 Timothy 3 6 and 7, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Phil Riken writes, and I quote, these warnings lead us to an obvious conclusion. Satan is out to get the elders of the church. This is basic military strategy, the oldest trick in the book. The best way to defeat an army is to attack its command and control. What better way to frustrate God's plans for the church of Jesus Christ than to overthrow the elders that he has appointed to lead it? End quote. So brothers and sisters, let's make sure that we have the right men, godly men, God's men, spiritually qualified men in leadership here at Webster Bible Church. Then, once the right men are appointed, let us respect them, encourage them, follow their godly example, and uphold them in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the instruction that we have received from your word this morning. There is so much packed into this passage, and given the fact that there's 15 qualifications, we could only spend a little time on every one. But we pray that your Holy Spirit has given us something to think about. And as we think about our under-shepherds in the church, first of all, I pray for us as under-shepherds that we would be able to say, as Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we think in respect to our elders, 
that we would do as Scripture commands and esteem them highly in love, not because of how great they are, but your word says esteem them highly in love for their work's sake, because what they do is a noble thing. God, I pray that we would see more men aspire, that they would stretch themselves out to attain this position of overseership, not for any kind of selfish ambition, but because they want to have a leading influence of what you are doing in the building of your church. And I know, Lord, speaking as a pastor, I need men like that. I thank you for men like that. Jesus, you are calling men like that. I pray that parents, even sitting in the pews today, that have children at home, that that they would inspire their sons to say, look, if you want to go across this path, look, this is a noble thing to attain to. How often, Lord, are we concerned about getting the very best education that will get us the best paying jobs instead of encouraging our children to seek the highest work? which is to glorify Christ and to be an influence in the local church. Teach us, instruct us, convict us, encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.